0: Hello, and welcome to Clout, a podcast profiling Australia's future leaders in Asia. I'm Brodie Burns-Williamson. And I'm Lucy Du. Thanks for joining us. So each week, we talk to Aussies making an impact in their community to learn about the dash of language, the pinch of culture, and the blind luck that led them to where they are today. We ask our guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability by sharing with us their choice of food song, show, and person to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. My guest today is Jessica Maddit, the author of Our Home in Myanmar, Four Years in Yangon. Jess's Asia story began in the mid-2000s, where her London journalism role took her to Myanmar and Bangladesh, where she spent seven years before returning to Australia in 2016. Jess's book, Our Home in Myanmar, is a memoir that describes her life in Myanmar in the lead-up to the historic general elections of 2015. Jess has worked in Myanmar as a journalist At the state-run newspaper and the Myanmar Times, as well as for the British Embassy and the UN. Jess is also a freelance journalist based in Sydney now. Her articles have been published by Forbes magazine, BBC, The Economist Intelligence Unit, and CNN. Today, we asked Jess to take us on her journey to Asia capability by nominating a food, a song, a movie and a person that help us understand what being an Asia-capable Australian is all about. Welcome, Jez. Thanks for having me, Lucy. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. Before we dive into your nominations, can you just tell us briefly, how did you end up working and living in Bangladesh and Myanmar, of all places?
1: Sure. So I finished my law degree in Melbourne, not wanting to practice. And so I did the backpacking for a year. I went from Cambodia to Pakistan. By the end of that year, walking around behaving like a journalist, I realised, ah, this is what I want to do. How do you become a journalist in the UK? And it took me a little while to work that out, but it took me about three years. And at the end of it, I was accredited as a newspaper journalist, but I could not get a job. So I kept doing internship after internship and working actually at garbage companies <laughs> stuff literally <laughs> you know temping reception and I had to decide if I would give up on becoming a journalist or think laterally, and I found a newspaper in Wikipedia that was an English-language newspaper in Bangladesh. I sent them a cold email out of nowhere. I was also entertaining the idea of going to work for a TV station in China because Mm -hmm. it was going to be those two options. But then Bangladesh, the newspaper, the Daily Star, they came back to me and said, we'll give you a stipend and you can stay for six months. So I leapt on a plane and ended up staying for three years before I even finished the internship. I had a full-time job at another English language newspaper. I was on like a, a livable salary in Bangladesh, wow. which admittedly is about a thousand dollars a month. You could do and a lot
0: with a thousand dollars. You can do
1: a heck of a lot. Yeah, you can. And then I freelanced and I married my translator, who I met out the front of a garment factory. And we got married after just nine months, lived in Bangladesh for three years. And then Myanmar, which, you know, just across the border, mm-hmm. was making some very interesting headlines. Aung San Suu Kyi had been released from prison. Yes. The media was reforming. So they were going to allow private newspapers mm-hmm. instead of just state-run newspapers while in Bangladesh. I had a friend, Kat, who works for, she was the AFP Bureau Chief. She knew an Australian called Ross Dunkley, who would be a cracker of a guest because he was known as the Murdoch of Asia. Wow. He owned papers in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Myanmar, and he owned the Myanmar Times. So she gave me his contact details. Again, I just emailed him and said, could you please give me a job or a try? And he said, yes, I'll give you a try. Come over. I'm not going to sponsor your visa. <laughs> it won't be legal or anything like that. You can come for 30 days and if you pass a 30-day trial, I'll give you a job as a sub-editor. And I passed that trial and stayed in Myanmar for four and a half years. And then Shepa, I won't give away the ending of the book, but it all came to a head and we had to very abruptly leave Myanmar in 2016, which was really sad, but it was honestly the best four and a half years of my life in Myanmar. Wow. So
0: 2012 to 2016, is that...
1: Yeah. And the elections were held in 2015. So there had not been elections for 50 years. I mean, there'd been a by-election, but this was a general election that Aung San Suu Kyi and her party were standing in. And I was working for the state-run newspaper. So I was inside the propaganda machine. I was, instead of looking at it from the outside, I was actually within that. So it was just fascinating. So
0: No, No, absolutely. And when in 2016, did you head back to Sydney or Australia?
1: It was September Mm -hmm. and a month later, the Rohingya genocide began. Sherpa being from Bangladesh, the situation was untenable. He was a journalist and he was Bangladeshi.
0: Yeah.
1: And so he he got locked out. I mean, yeah, yeah, that was really sad. And so, yeah, so now I've been freelancing in Sydney since 2016.
0: That's incredible. I actually went to Myanmar in February, 2016. And before Ah. our chat today, I went through all the old photos actually. And I remember we went, my partner and I went because we had friends who were expats there from Hong Kong and they were there to set up the first pizza hut in (gasps) Myanmar in 2016. And if that gives an indication of... I guess, the hope and that optimism in terms of the business community, that was kind of how we felt when we got there. It was unbelievable. Yeah, there was a lot of excitement of how this could be, you know, the next Vietnam, the next China so much opportunity and there was still obviously the, you know, volatility from the years of previous rule, but there was just such energy in the city. And it's kind of crazy to think very shortly after how things turned.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I remember when the first KFC opened in Yangon, you know, because after 50 years of isolation, like Coca-Cola returned and stuff there were lines like down the street for KFC because it was symbolic of Myanmar, you know, coming back into the global community. And it was so exciting because when you were there, that was when the government, the handover was actually occurring. And a lot of people in the lead up to the election had been worried that there would be a coup. And then there wasn't, it was peaceful. It was wonderful. Correct. And then, you know, they won a second election and that's when the military had the coup. They said enough is enough.
0: You know, yeah. So, exactly. Yeah. Really sad. Absolutely. Well, maybe you can tell us about your music nomination for today. What have you picked? Yes.
1: I. Song? I have picked now. The name of the song is "Kaba Majaibu, which is translated as "We won't be satisfied until the end of the world." Mm. I love this song and I had heard it so many times in Myanmar and then when I was at a pro-democracy protest for Myanmar last year, it was played and everybody, there was like a live band and everybody sung it together, like, you Mm -hmm. know, a few hundred people were singing it and it was really beautiful. And I took a video and then ahead of this podcast, I was thinking, what's the name of the song? So I put it on Twitter, just this little clip saying, I love this song, what's the name of this song? 2000 people, like just an outpouring. No. Of, you know, t- yeah, yeah, no. tweets and retweets. I've wow. been sent the English language lyrics. People love this song. This is a resistance song, it's a revolutionary song. Uh-huh. It's originally that the tune is by the American band Kansas from the 70s, but it was adapted around the time of the 88 protests in Myanmar, which were the really horrific student protests when there Mm -hmm. was that was the first kind of serious democracy resistance and a lot of people died, mostly university students. So it became famous then and as an anthem of, you know, resistance. And sadly, it's being sung by this generation of people. I think the version I gave to you that the name of the band is like Gen X Band or something. So it's people, you know, on Twitter saying, makes them cry. They wish they weren't singing it again. It really is kind of the song for the people of Myanmar to come together and and feel strongly united in opposition Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. the military.
0: Yeah, and why is that song special to you as well does it make you feel well
1: (laughs) yeah I mean I love it it gives me shivers Mm. I don't even
0: I listen to it it's a beautiful song
1: it's a beautiful song I always loved it and to be honest it reminds me of shopping in the supermarket like at City Mart in Yangon like just Mm -hmm. doing my groceries and that kind of so many memories of just no specific memory but just blended into those into my time there Mm. And then to hear it again and with everybody singing. But seeing Myanmar people in Sydney protesting, I just, I can't believe it. I can't believe where Myanmar is. Mm. And I think that feeling is very much shared by young people. You know, the people in Sydney, they have not seen their family in Myanmar now Mm. or two to three years because of the pandemic and because of the coup and it's not safe for most people to return. Yes. And that's, you know, people saying on Twitter, like we miss our families and they don't want to keep singing this song forever.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. During your time there, how was it, you know, kind of living as an expat and as Australian? Did you speak any?
1: Myanmar Burmese? (laughs) I had lessons The Myanmar times paid for my lessons Mm. and I was rubbish at it. The person that I learnt with went on to do very well. She became fluent and Sherpa, who was my translator in Bangladesh, once again became my translator in Myanmar because he could, he became fluent. He could read street signs. He could speak. He also learned Thai because his boss, his newspaper was half Thai, half Mm. Burmese, the owner's. I'm terrible with languages. I tried really hard in Bangladesh to learn Bangla and I could speak Bangla and then I had fatigue, language fatigue, you know, that's mm. that's my poor excuse. I could do taxis and stuff like that, but I was not proficient. No.
0: Yeah, but it was still, I guess, having, you know, a partner and others around who could help with the translation. Do you think the language aspect was crucial in understanding the country, the city, being able to live there as a local?
1: Fewer people learn Myanmar because it is called, in my book I refer to it as Burmese, but Mm. officially it is called the Myanmar people, the Myanmar language. Not many expats do speak Mm. Burmese. I would say it's definitely a minority, unlike, say, in Thailand, where if, you know, you do stay for more than a few years, you will learn Thai or Mm. Indonesian. Mm. You know, and I I worked with a translator, so for my stories and things like that, So there was often times when I was unable to comprehend what was going on around me. And I think also, even if I'd spoken the language, I would have been unable to comprehend what was Mm. going on around me because it's, especially like in the state-run newspaper, we just weren't told we were not given all the information. Mm. So I had a really good friend who was a translator. And actually, yeah, I mean, Sherpa being able to speak Burmese, he heard things that he wished he couldn't sometimes. That was the sad aspect of it Mm. because of the racism. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have. It would have enhanced my experience there a lot more if I could fully understand what people were saying.
0: Mm. I wonder if it's a hard language too. Is there an alphabet or no, it's script? It's script. It's It's a
1: beautiful-looking language, Mm. really cursive, like lots of loops and letters, and it's super ancient, like it hasn't really, well, I mean, I had, so I've had my book translated into Burmese. Mm. So I've paid a translator to do that. It's a free ebook. It's also a free audiobook because very few people can, very few Myanmar people can speak English because it was actually prohibited for a long time. Speaking to a foreigner was prohibited wow. for a long time. Yeah. This was, you know, zero tourism and it was completely sealed off as like, you know, this kind of hermetic state. Yes. So I've wanted that for my book because I feel that so much has been lost and also a lot of Myanmar people aren't confident speaking English because they haven't had access to very good education. I mean Mm. it's not taught at school or anything. You have to go and learn privately. And the people that I worked with at the state-run newspaper, they weren't military lackeys or anything. They were working there primarily because they wanted the opportunity to learn English and this was one of the few or the only way to do that. That's been important to me to have my book just, you know, to be able to be read because so much is lost when you can't have, but it was it was more than the language. The barriers were more than the language. For sure. So I could tell you, I could tell you one interesting anecdote. So tell me When I arrived, there was a guy called Phil who was a Kiwi. Mm-hmm. There was only one expat pub in the city, and that was called 50th Street Bar and Restaurant. And that had every business had to be part owned by a Myanmar person mm-hmm. that Myanmar person suggested drawing a line through the pub one side for expats and one side for Burmese wow. and I said no no <laughs> and then he was like well I don't know why Myanmar people would want to go there anyway like if you guys will be there so I mean it was just yeah hard to explain how but the people you know so kind and beautiful and wanting to be part of the international community, but not mm. having had the opportunities to do so. Yeah. And that was all, you know, career opportunities were just taking off and now it's closed again.
0: For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, for people you know, like myself, I don't even think I knew where Myanmar was growing up or even that a yeah. country, you know, was called. there was a country called Myanmar in Asia and it wasn't big, until 2015, 2016 as they had the transition towards democracy and you know having Ansan Sugi become a lot more prominent internationally, that it really put you know memo on the radar. Yep. For well,
1: Obama coming twice certainly put it, you know, front page headlines ahead of the historic general election. And it it felt like what is a backwater for expats Mm. suddenly became, you know, the travel darling of Asia for a while. It was Condé Nast's top five place to go because it's so beautiful and it's so pristine. And yes, it's rich in natural resources and it has borders with China and India and Bangladesh and Thailand it's and Laos, you know, it's amazing. Mm. It's a port city, so much potential and such a young population, you know, 60 million people. Mm. So yes, it did definitely. And I feel that Obama came because he wanted the military to know that the world was watching. Mm. He came a second time, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. ostensibly for a conference in Indonesia, but I still believe he was showing that he cared and that people were watching and Hillary Clinton came as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tell us what movie you picked for us today. It's a good segue into
1: that. It sure is. It's The Lady, which is a 2011 Hollywood film starring Michelle Yeoh, who has just won a Golden Globe. Yes. And she is so convincing in this movie as Aung San Suu Kyi. I have a hard time believing it isn't actually Aung San Suu Kyi. Wow. She's picked up the most, the subtlest mannerisms, that the way she walks, the way she holds her body, you know, that same elegance and reserved Mm -hmm. nature. It's a really gripping film about... You know, Aung San Suu Kyi inherited the mantle of being a democracy icon from mm. her father, which most people in the West don't know, but her father is considered the father of the nation. He's more famous than she is. But right. he, yeah, which is extraordinary. <laughs> it's yes. extraordinary. He is, you know, has a godlike status. So you get in a cab in Yangon, and there will be a picture of Aung San. So mm. that's the first part of her name dangling from the dashboard yes. mirror. And his poster is everywhere. And for a long time you were not allowed to have posters of her. You were not allowed to speak her name out loud. So the code for her became The Lady. Mm -hmm. And so if expats, whoever, that you know, the very small number of expats that were living in Yangon prior to 2010 would just, if I was talking to you in Yangon, I would not call her Aung San Suu Kyi. I'd Mm. call her The Lady. So the movie takes that title and, it you know, it goes back to her childhood and her father tragically was assassinated She went and studied in Oxford, wonderfully educated, married a British man who was also an academic, and then her mother got sick and she came back very, very sick Mm. around the 80s, coincided with those terrible protests I told you about. Yes. And they needed a leader she never went back to England again. So it's a extraordinary film. It's really good. It's really accessible. It gives Mm -hmm. you the right amount of information because Mm -hmm. Myanmar is a really complex country. So sometimes it's difficult even to know where to start, but they balance it well. I don't think they go superficially light. Okay. It's not too
0: sensationalized either. It doesn't need to be
1: like the story. Truth is stranger than fiction in this case. So I think it's excellent. I really enjoyed it.
0: Okay, well, we'll definitely include it in our show notes. I will definitely add it to my watching list um, because I and, know very little about her, I think.
1: Yeah, and I should just also add that for Michelle Yeoh, she was then barred from ever entering Myanmar. She was put on the infamous blacklist. Interesting, Yeah, so, you know, because it's still Aung San Suu Kyi had been released from prison, who is currently in prison as we speak. But, mm. you know, this 10-year period, the time that I was there, in 2011 it was still considered inflammatory enough to let her know that she was not welcome in Myanmar.
0: Okay. And how was the movie received
1: locally? Because it was released when you were there. Oh, it wouldn't have shown. It wouldn't have? Okay. No, no. I didn't watch it in Myanmar. I watched it before I arrived.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And her, yeah. how is Aung San Suu Kyi? Now, or has the sentiment towards her changed? From- well,
1: she again, there's two different things happening in parallel. Mm. You know, she fell from grace for not being courageous yes. with the Rohin genocide. And, you know, she awards were revoked and things like that. Mm-hmm. Her portrait was taken down from universities in England where she, you know, received honorary doctorates and stuff like mm-hmm. that. She has always been beloved in Myanmar. And she remains so, and she's in prison. People don't even know where she is. And she's Mm -hmm. got a 33 year sentence and she is 76 or 77. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, she's a martyr. She's a living martyr. And it just breaks my heart. I acknowledge the things she has done and the things that she hasn't done, but she's still a person and she shouldn't be in prison. So Mm. we know because Professor Sean Turnell was released from prison, Mm -hmm. the Australian academic, and he, just because of what he, the little information he knows, people kind of know that she's somewhere in the capital city in a compound because he was seeing her at the trial.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So she's not in a hardcore prison with other prisoners, but it's very sad. It's very sad that she should not be in prison.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, why don't we go to another person of clout? Who have you nominated as your person today? Okay.
1: My person is Dr Sasa who is an extraordinary man, his life is not short of drama. His life would make an amazing biopic. Yeah. (laughs) He was born in Chin State, which borders with India, and it's extremely remote, and it's Mm -hmm. the most impoverished state of Myanmar. Mm -hmm. He was the first person in his village to go to high school Wow. He went to study, he did his medical degree in Armenia because it was half the price that it would have been in India. Mm-hmm. And he can speak six languages or something. And he is, I've interviewed him. I interviewed him for the Southeast Asia Globe. Didn't know his whereabouts. There was a go-between that organised it because he he's wanted for treason in Myanmar, which is because anyone who opposed the military you know got will suffer the punishment if they're caught mm. so when the coup happens he fled he disguised himself as a taxi driver Fled across the border, and since then, his whereabouts are unknown but to like a very small inner circle. But Mm. he is such a charismatic, wonderful leader who can bridge the language divide. You Mm. know, he can speak all these languages. He's also from a minority group, which is really to have a political leader that's not from the majority ethnic group is quite unusual, to be honest. And Mm. he's a young man who he's a wonderful orator, he speaks. He has millions of gazillions of social media fans and followers. Mm. But his circumstances of he was, if the coup had not happened, he was going to be appointed to the UN as Myanmar's representative. So he'd be playing on the global stage no matter what. Wow. He's a very likable individual who speaks very simply, the way that great speakers do. And he just has a sort of magical quality about him. But he's suffering a lot. He had to take some time off for ill health due to the strain of being in hiding and, you know, this is a government that's not receiving any pay because Mm. even though they've won two elections, when there's a coup, you know, they were ousted. So they are trying to govern from outside with no funding. Right. So, you know, he said to me, you know, I'm living off the kindness of my friends and strangers and donations and he sleeps about four hours a night because he's a workaholic. So it's tough. He kind of, he has the country on his shoulders, but if anyone can take Myanmar forward and you know emerge from the darkness and return to democracy. Mm, you believe he can. He would make an extraordinary leader. Mm. And he really could be the next Ung San Su Chi because a okay. lot of people say there's no one. We have no young people because our education system was decimated. Mm. We haven't had opportunities. It's only the minority of very wealthy Burmese who have been able mm. to go to Singapore or whatnot. Then you have Dr. Zasa, who is so incredibly talented that he mm. despite all these challenges of where he was born, he finds himself at the UN. So it's a really i and I would love to see that. I think you can hear it in my voice. Mm. <laughs> I'd really yes. love to see him lead Myanmar.
0: Absolutely. Well what a great opportunity to speak with him so recently as well and definitely a name I think we should all be keeping an eye on. Yeah. One thing that I when I was there, it really left a very lasting memory, to be honest, my trip to Myanmar. It was the piece of history that, you know, Myanmar used to be called Burma, which mm-hmm. we talked about briefly with Burmese. And it actually was under British rule, which again, you know, my ignorance has shown and I wasn't aware. And and George Orwell actually wrote a book before he did Animal Farm in 1904 called Burmese Days, which talks, you know, a little bit about, you know, his own personal experiences and his memoirs, a British imperial officer in the 20s or something. You know, kind of, Did you notice any British influence and in the colonial influence, apart from architecture, of course, um, during your time there?
1: Well, I mean, Yangon is a city that was frozen in time, right? So Mm. you have these extraordinary colonial buildings that, you know, have not been demolished or, or been maintained. So you do see that. But no, not really because there was a deliberate effort to erase the British past. Mm. So the street names, there's only one street name which is Strand Road, which the British Embassy is on. Mm. all the other all the street names were changed, as you know, they should have been. But in Bangladesh and you know South Asia, English, most people are bilingual. the level of of English is incredibly high. But that's not the case in Myanmar because, it, you know, English was effectively banned. Mm. English publications were looked upon with suspicion. So really no. I mean, it was. I worked at the British Embassy as a consultant and I found that absolutely fascinating because you were talking about the Myanmar Burma, you know, it's a political hot potato. Mm. So at the embassy we had two letterheads and if it was going to the Myanmar government, who had overnight changed the name of the country, by the way, which is why there's a lot of opposition to it. We we called it the country of Myanmar and the city of Yangon. But if it was to anybody else, like to the UN or to the Swedish embassy Mm. or something, it was Burma and Rangoon. It was messy, you know, and, and no one in Myanmar calls it Burma or Rangoon except for a few Anglophiles who, and most people actually don't even care what you call it, but there's not much trace of Orwell left. You can Mm. go to the Pegu Club, which was redone, which is fantastic, where Orwell used to go and drink. Mm. And I went to his, he was stationed in Molamine for five years as an imperial police officer, and I retraced his steps. Oh, wow. And there's a book called Finding George Orwell in Myanmar, that you have to read and it was written by Emma Larkin which was written under a pseudonym because it was not safe for her to publish under her name Mm. and I know her and I've interviewed her she's another person like Dr Zasa and many people have do not she's under the radar so that she could continue her work and not to endanger the people that she interviewed for this book that she wrote before Myanmar's opening but Finding George Orwell is an extraordinary book. And if you ask me to say a favourite book, that would be it.
0: Oh, we'll include it. We're definitely adding that to our list as well. That's amazing. And to end, Jess, what is your nomination for food? My favourite topic.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Myanmar cuisine is unlike any other cuisine I had encountered. I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought it would be more like Thai Mm -hmm. it's because that's a neighbour. But no, it's more like Indian food. So the curries and stuff are rich and oily. Lots of meat, but Myanmar per capita, the the biggest rice eaters in the world, that's also a reflection of poverty because there's not a lot of meat Mm. available and, you know, sometimes even vegetables has many, many, many unusual dishes. And I was like, oh, which one would it be? The avocado smoothie that I loved or the um, shan tomato salad. But no, I went with the tea leaf salad Mm -hmm. Because it's a fermented tea leaf, which is, I don't think any other culture eats, ingests tea leaves. You know, we Mm -hmm. all love tea. Like what culture doesn't have tea? Yes. But this is the fermented tea leaves. It's a salad with caffeine in it. And someone I worked with at Myanmar Times, Manny, who's Australian Burmese, I remember her saying that she, her mum used to give it to her when she was studying to keep her up. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's like having a Red Bull, but have tea leaf salad. Okay. And it's eaten everywhere. You know, we'd have it in the newsroom and there'd be little, you'd have your own teaspoon. You just go and take some. So it's fermented tea leaves, Mm. which are delicious with peanuts, tomatoes, sesame seeds, teeny tiny shrimp, like the size of my Mm -hmm. fingernail Mm -hmm. that are dried. And it's just so delicious. It's a combination of kind of sour and salty and almost a little bit sweet. And the, the texture is crunchy, but the fermented tea leaves are moist. Okay. Dense. And then you've got the tomato, you know, which is finely chopped. So yes. it's like nothing else I have ever eaten. And Burmese cuisine is like nothing else I've ever mm. eaten. I say it's close to Indian. It's closest to Indian. Yeah. But it's unique.
0: Where can we find it in Sydney or Melbourne?
1: Sydney or Melbourne. Well, I mean, there's a great Burmese restaurant in Melbourne, but I can't remember the name. And then in Sydney, you've got Sun's Burmese Kitchen in Mm -hmm. Blacktown. Okay. And there's a couple of, like, if you check, there's another one whose name I've forgotten. But there are also, if you go to any, like, Indian, Nepalese, Fijian grocer, there's a Burmese section. Okay. And you can get these packets, these packets of Lepeto. Yep. Which is the Burmese name. They're all individually sealed. And then you just combine them all together and then throw in the tomato. Yes. And you can also look up the recipe online. Yes. You've like given that. me
0: one from SBS Foods. So that will yeah. I might have to give that a go.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'd like to see more Burmese restaurants, but mm-hmm. again, it's um tourism was going really well. And people were starting to come back, you know, and thinking, oh, I'd love to go for Burmese. It has some amazingly delicious foods. But it's just really sad because people will not be going as tourists to Myanmar for the foreseeable future. And so, you know, Mm. it's unlikely that a Burmese restaurant is going to open near you sometime soon, unfortunately. But you can if you, you know, if you do a Google search, you might be able to find one.
0: I know there's one in Canberra, actually. (gasps) Ah. I think it's called Burmese curry or burmese house and they used to just do really simple and going to your point about curries it's that's the closest thing of what i would describe their food to look like but i the tastes weren't curry tastes they just no curries yeah Uh, and it was delicious very popular place really you know kind of good value for size as well um, and very popular amongst all the public servants around civic
1: Yeah. Mm. And I mean, I should also say in Melbourne and Sydney and maybe some of the other capital cities, there are ongoing food stalls. So like in Sydney, every other week, there's one at Villawood and you can go and buy heaps of all the Burmese diaspora mm. cooking, madly cooking every week, selling the food. And it all goes back to Myanmar to help the democracy protesters. Oh, so Okay. Yeah, if you were to go to Villawood Community Centre, they're doing yeah. an extraordinary sustained effort to do that. So yeah. that's a great way. Like you can also get jumpers with a three-finger salute that, again, the proceeds yeah. go to the democracy protesters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think we're running a little bit out of time. So my kind of last question and love to hear your thoughts and comments you spent all this time in Myanmar and Bangladesh. You're now back in Australia. You've published your first book. I think you've told me that you're working on a second. You know, how do you thinking back to your Asia experience, how has that helped you to be impactful in what you're doing now?
1: It's helped a lot. Having seen the world, like I, you know, regularly, it might seem a small thing, but as a journalist, I regularly interview people. And if they're from India, I can say, you know, which part of India, and I was there for six months. So I will know which part, it's just a nice, makes me happy to talk to someone Mm. as well, (laughs) to bring back those good memories. So it's small things. And, you know, people like I interviewed an amazing tech founder from Pakistan who was like, oh, wow, you've been to Pakistan. We get that rapport quickly. The Mm -hmm. interview goes better because we've quickly, which is the essence of journalism, built a rapport. So he will trust me to tell me his story and not feel that he needs to withhold information or that I won't get it because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of Australians don't get it. And that's fair enough because if you haven't been, how I, you know, I don't know about the parts of the world that I haven't been to. Mm. So we can only go to so many places. But Asia is the part of the world that I really love and it's enriched me as a person. And I think Myanmar specifically enriched me because the ethos that people live by and you would know this is, you know, the the Buddhist way is, you know, non-materialistic and to endure To Endure Without Complaining, Mm. which is an art (laughs) that I have not mastered. Mm. But it gives me the dignity of people that I saw continuing with their lives under the most extraordinary hardships in extraordinarily difficult places to work, you know, geographically and politically. But they maintain happiness and dignity in the way that they carry themselves Mm. and that will forever inspire me. And to see them now as they continue day after day to hold silent strikes in Yangon despite mm. you know the most terrible repercussions if they're caught is will forever i hope give me perspective as well in australia we are such a wealthy country mm. it's not perfect but my gosh you know the starting point is just that much higher so you know i'm a parent now i've got a 2 year old and a 4 year old and i mm. hope to i hope to be able to show them that this is not the way it is this is kind of one way mm and be grateful for, for all that you have. And then what can you, what in your life can you contribute and become enriched yourself? I'm just happier in Asia. That's how mm. I feel. I'm not quite sure why, but I am, I mean, I love yes. Sydney, but yeah. um, well, I just want my kids to get a little bit older so that we can go and explore mm. all the other pockets that I haven't been.
0: Absolutely. Fantastic. That is so great. It's been great to speak with you, Jess. At Clout, we tell the stories of Australians and their journey to leveraging their Asia capability in building Clout and making a unique impact in their community. And I think your story today is one excellent example. So thank you again for sharing your story with us today. Thanks, Lucy.